Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. All right. Well, welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Charles Hill, Business Development Manager at Spira Data. How's it going, man? Good, man. How are you? Doing good. It's another beautiful Friday. Temperature's actually risen a little bit, which is nice. How was your week? Was it pretty busy? It was good. A uh, little different from what I'm used to. More uh, inside sales and talking to people on the phone and getting into their offices versus being out in the field and being out on the near the wellhead and so it's a little different some adjustments some getting used to but it's good anything any change is good man it's where you grow right so before we got on the microphone you were talking about tim hortons so you said that's your favorite coffee my favorite coffee that's hilarious so tell us the story how did you actually get into tim hortons or start drinking it so maybe five years ago i was in oman and had instant coffee at the hotels and things like that. And I was just like, I cannot take instant coffee anymore. So I had to find a coffee shop and they said, just go to the mall. So I went to the mall. They had a Costa and a Tim Hortons and I tried Costa. It was good. And then went to a Tim Hortons and said, I'll take a black coffee. They literally dumped it out and said it was past its time. So it would be about 10 minutes. I was a little irritated at that point because I was like, no, I really want some coffee. Right. When a guy wants coffee, it's like he wants it now. So I totally understand. Yeah. I mean, it had been three days since I've had a good cup of coffee. So um, <laughs> anything would do. Yeah. And so I waited the 10 minutes because it had to be legit if uh, they were going to make me wait that long to sell one cup of coffee. And when I had it, I was hooked. I was like, yep, I got to have it. And so Spirits headquarters are in Alberta, Canada. Yeah. In and, Calgary, right? Yeah. Calgary. Yeah. And that's my home. So every time I'm there now to do any type of training or updates or anything like that, I'll, I'll bring back a couple bags of Tim Hortons coffee so I can grind it up and it's fresh. It's it's beautiful. That's hilarious. So does your wife drink coffee? She does. What does she think of old Timmy's? She is a Starbucks girl, but she does like Tim Hortons. Mm-hmm. So whenever I brought back the whole bean, grind it, she's like, yeah. okay, I get it now. But when we first had it, they had it in the pods. It didn't taste the same. It's different. Like, yeah. yeah. I was like, this isn't it. Uh, I wonder if it's like just the fact that it's already ground and then it sits in plastic for that long. Probably. Like it's got to leach out or something like that or something. But it's funny because whenever I go back home, I'll get off, get off the plane, walk through the airport. And as soon as I see my first Tim Hortons, I'll walk up and get a large double-double. I don't know what it is, and it's just like, it's for something like the cream and the sugar, the mixture, what kind of cream it is, it's probably like the most like processed stuff you could ever get, but it's like something about a large double-double is like crack, man. And when I started drinking it, so when I was working rigs, working midnights, I would always get tired, and guys were like, man, just drink some coffee, and I'm like, ah, I probably won't do anything, and then one night we're going to work, and I was exhausted, and we drove, you know, they always did their Timmy's stop, right, right before getting to the rig, and I was like, oh, whatever, just get me what you think will keep me up. And fuck, I was fired up. Like, as soon as I drank, I was like, oh, man, I never really had a caffeine buzz. So, of course, I felt like on top of the world, right? So, I'm always chasing the dragon now. But uh, that's funny you say that. Actually, we've got a few people in our office because AES Drilling Fluids, they're based out of Canada. So, there's got like ladies and guys will go to, you know, for meetings and stuff like that. And they always ask me, they're like, you want some Tim Hortons? I'm like, yeah, of course. And then they'll bring back like O'Henry bars or like a chocolate bar. And then, 
coffee crisp. I don't know. You, I don't think you guys get that down here. And then Smarties. They're like little chocolate drop things that down here, they're like M&Ms, but up home, we call them Smarties. And you and anyone Canadian listening, you always eat the red ones last, right? So that's a thing. <laughs> and then what else is there? There's Oh Henry, and then there's Tim Hortons or something. Oh, ketchup chips, of course. Have you ever had ketchup chips? I have not. Oh, buddy. So good. Yeah, yeah. they don't taste like ketchup. So don't, if you ever see them, try them because they're delicious. I guess I haven't been indoctrinated enough into Canadian culture. No, you haven't. So next time you talk to, is Jeremy, right? Jeremy, yeah. He's out of Calgary there. Just let him know, hey, if you're down here, bring me some ketchup chips and just try one. You'll be hooked. Kind of a funny story for the listeners, actually. I was at our office here in Houston and I saw Charles. You had just actually met with AES and I didn't know the guy you're with, but it's Jeremy. What's his last Jeremy name? Jeremy Thompson. Thompson. Okay. And what is his role with Spira? He is the VP of sales and marketing. Right. Okay. So he obviously attended the meeting with you. Well, I saw you in the hallway and we started BSing and one thing led to the next and Jeremy and I are talking and come to find out Jeremy's, it was his nephew? His younger brother. Oh, his younger brother is Wade? Well, that was his nephew, yeah. Okay, yeah. So Wade Marchand, you probably, if you're ever listening to this podcast, it'd be funny, but I went to high school in Verdun, British Columbia, and Jeremy's nephew actually played football with me, and he was my quarterback. And so it's a, it's a small world. Again, you know, who would have who thought we're sitting in Houston, we meet, and all of a sudden the guy you're with is my quarterback's uncle. You know, yeah. it's just, it's hilarious. It's a small world, especially in the oil field. It kind of brings everybody together. But anyway, so last summer, I think, is when we met, right? Yep. And that was right before I did my uh, inaugural triathlon in Katy there, and which was a complete disaster. I didn't train for it properly, and I went in probably about 20 pounds heavier than I should have and just completely crapped the bed, if, if for lack of better terms. But that's you, you have a background in triathlons, don't you? I do. Yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I never really had a desire for long-distance anything. <laughs> okay. Um, and I always played soccer, so running, I swam in middle school and high school. And, and what happened was is I tore my meniscus uh, playing soccer, and, and the doctor said, you don't have to have surgery, but you're not going to run a marathon. And so I took that as a challenge. I didn't have my surgery, went home and started doing my own type of rehab, and Signed up for a half marathon, and my wife was like, what are you doing? You, you don't like to run? And I was like, no, I don't, but you can't run a full marathon until you run a half marathon, so yeah. this is where we start. And led into doing half marathons, and then I completed my first full marathon, and a buddy of mine said, you should get into triathlons. And I was, I was like, nah, I don't want to buy a bike, and I don't like swimming that much. And, <laughs> so two uh, of the three movements you absolutely don't want to do, so yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, and so he convinced me to to go ahead and go for it. And I was like, all right, I'll do a sprint. And I did a sprint triathlon and fell in love. I was like, this is, this is the sport that I should have been doing when I was 20. No kidding. Uh, was that, and just to, not to cut you off, but with a sprint that you did that sprint, was it 400 meter swim too? It was Are they a 500 meter swim. Meter swim. Yeah. Okay. So some of them can go anywhere from four, I mean, 250 really to about six, 700 meters oh, okay. uh, for a sprint. Olympic is all going to be the same 1500 meters. And then of course, half Ironman, Ironmans have their, their distances. But so I did the sprint and then, which did a couple sprints. And I was like, okay, I need to do an Olympic, did a couple Olympics and, and I said, you know what, let's try a half, half Ironman. And so did the half Ironman in Austin, did pretty well and, and competed in it. And What's pretty well? Four hours and 15 minutes, which is pretty decent. So the pros will probably finish it in 253, but that's all they do. And so I was, I was pretty happy with where I finished. And, yeah, that's awesome. And so got home and 
my wife is like, so when are you thinking about doing the full? I was like, eventually I'll probably do a full. And she's like, no, I just signed you up. We need to get it out of your system today. <laughs> so she signed me up for the Woodlands Ironman and completed that two years ago. Oh, so you did the Ironman. Did the okay, Iron I didn't Man. know that. Yeah. Holy smokes, buddy. That's crazy. Yeah. And it was a good time. I finished where I wanted. My goal was 12 hours, finished 12 hours and two minutes. So good job, I was right where I wanted to be and really itching to do another one but the time commitment for that is is pretty time consuming so training is important obviously and so what what does that look like if you're training for a sprint compared to say like an ironman because what's the distance for the ironmans again it's 140.6 and what's the split like what's your swim bike run so swim is 2.5 miles 112 mile bike and then a 26.2 run buddy that makes me want to puke just thinking about it <laughs> i i cramped up so bad on the sprint i probably like want to chop my legs off halfway through an iron man yeah you, it's insane. you you learn some things along the way things that to listen to your body and what works for you as far as nutrition but nutrition is they say it's the fourth discipline i'd say it's probably the first yeah i would agree with that if you could dial in your nutrition well then obviously to me the bike is the next big one because if you're strong on the bike you're going to be strong on the run so I put a lot of time and energy into the bike portion of it. That's where you spend most of your time. And I wanted to have strong legs so that way when I did get into the run, I wouldn't cramp up. Or So when you're training for an Ironman, do you train different methods of swimming, biking, and running? Or do you do a lot of supplementary work outside of those three modalities? So pretty much you, if you have time to do anything else, then you're you're pretty devoted just to that only. So you're you're doing what you can with what you can. So, I mean, my time was focused heavily on just swimming, biking, and running. There was no lifting weights. There was no any of that stuff. I didn't have time. I didn't have the energy. My body couldn't take it. No um, kidding. Because you obviously don't want to burn out. Like, you want to peak at race time, right? right? So, you're going to want to build up to it just like any other sort of major sporting event. Okay. And now that I've completed one, methods of training could be different. What would you change? What would be the biggest thing? So, I would do a little bit more strength training. Just for core and things like that, because if you're solid in the middle, you're going to be solid everywhere else. So it was definitely, you know, opened my eyes to a couple of different things. Nutrition was a big deal. I mean, the, the wake up call for me was whenever I completed my Ironman, used to taking in so many calories and then I stopped working out the way I was. Kept uh, eating. <laughs> you, yeah, you put on some weight pretty quick. Uh, I bet because I would assume... Just based off what I know, you're probably, when you're training that hard, I would say you're probably consuming it at a minimum 4,000 calories a day. Yeah. Okay. What, what, what were, do you know roughly or were you tracking yeah, it? Was, it? it was in between four and 5,000 calories a day. Yeah, that's a significant thinking. amount of food. Like, and especially if you're eating clean, that's like, like you think an average meal normally is about 800 calories if you're eating clean. So you do the math, that's several meals per day. Yep. So like, and then all of a sudden you stop training that hard and just, your body's just like, well, we'll just store it all over your body now. Yep. That's I mean, funny. there would be days where I'd be like, okay, I need to get more calories. So a bowl of ice cream and some M&Ms or Oreo cookies in it just to hit hit a calorie count. Yeah. I would have to do because there was no way I was putting any more kale or spinach into my body. <laughs> so. Well, and at that point, like, your body is so, your, your metabolism is fast. You basically need to have your glycogen levels as high as you can going into a training session to maximize your, you know, your, your training efforts. So I can imagine like habitually you're used to doing that. And if you are eating ice cream and the other things, you're, you're getting those cravings too. So then once you come off, then I could imagine that mentally must have been pretty challenging to, to dial it back. Yeah, it was April when I completed the Ironman in December. 
my wife told me we need to go on a diet. So I put on, <laughs> I put on roughly almost 40 pounds okay. in, in that amount of time. And, but it was good. I mean, I enjoyed my time. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a good time and yeah, I got back in shape after that. So there you go. Anything in the future with regards to triathlons? It's debatable. I mean, I, I have a new bike now since I've bought it. I haven't ridden it. Okay. But, it's uh, waiting for you. Yeah, It's yeah. waiting. And so I'm, I'm ready to go and I'll probably hit one or two this year. Cool. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I did have one more question. Did you have a coach when you were doing this or did you do your own programming? So I did a lot of my own programming. A buddy of mine that had done it previously, he kind of helped me out and we put a game plan together and he set me up, you know, these are your targets. This is what you should do. But it was more of a collaboration with him and he didn't hold me accountable. He didn't need that stuff. He just said, this is what I would do if I were you. And I was like, Hey, you've done it. So that's what I'm going to do. Cool. Awesome. So if I ever decide to jump in the triathlon world, you'd be able to point me in the right direction absolutely. with a little program? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I could, I could definitely do that. I have several people that actually reach out. Hey, what would you do first? Get your nutrition right. Yeah. So Fair enough. Yeah. So are you, when it comes to racing, are you into racing in general or is it mostly just triathlons? I'm competitive by nature. So okay. anything that I do, I want to do well. And so when I don't do well, I'm I have to do it again. Hey, and that's that's a good mentality and, and sort of a good discipline to have. You know, it's what a lot of high performers, they're driven off, you know, competition. Speaking of races, and this is the funniest thing I came across in a long time. Have you ever heard of the Fool's Roll race? Uh-uh. <laughs> I'm going to read the description. So, yes, I'm reading off a computer. You'll be able to tell. So, using $2,000 or less, you must buy a car, drive it to Vegas, Sell the car, put all the money on one bet of blackjack, roulette, craps, or war while wearing costumes the entire time. The team that gets to Vegas, and this is out of starting in Austin, the team that gets to Vegas in the least amount of time without breaking the law wins. So if you get a ticket or a speeding ticket, you're out. So the first place winner is 10 grand, and then the second place is 4,000, and third place is 2,000. Isn't that hilarious? That is hilarious. Yeah. So I talked to when I was on an, an airplane one time, I forget, I was sitting beside a guy who explained it to me and he had done it. And he was like a CEO of some company, like talking to the guy, you would have never guessed that he did something like this. And he was showing me pictures. And I was like, dude, you're out of your mind. Like you literally bought the the, the biggest piece of crap. Like think about a $2,000 car and you got to rip from Austin to Vegas. It's so funny. So if anybody's out there and you want to like take your customers for a good time, that would be the thing to do. It's a good, be a great bonding experience. I just had to bring that up because talking about races, I came across this not too long ago. I was like, I wonder if he's heard of this. Nope, I have not. Oh man. Well, before we get into the weeds here, I just wanted to take a quick break. Everyone out there listening, please support the show and leave me a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. You can hit me up on LinkedIn if you want to. I actually got a, a nice shout out on LinkedIn Julie Bennett, she actually reached out to me and she just just wrote something real nice. She said, I love the direction you all are taking the industry with podcasting. Thanks for all you're doing to bring our industry to the 21st century. Rock on exclamation mark. So thanks, Julie. I appreciate it. It's nice to, you know, it's it's good on seeing the reviews on, on iTunes and other things. But to send a personal message just to say, hey, thanks for what you're doing. That actually meant quite a bit to me. So I really appreciate that. So Let's get into things. So how did you go from work? Because back in the day, I looked at your LinkedIn, you worked in sales at Pinnacle Security, right? And then you transitioned into oil field and you started at New Tech. So what did, you know, 
tell us about your background, how you got into oil and gas, and then how you landed here at Spira. Yeah, so before Pinnacle, I worked at Chase Bank, and and anybody who's been in banking knows that that's just a grind. And, <laughs> yeah, and, my wife's done it. She hated yeah, it. Yeah, it can be boring, and you know, I was tired of having to talk to every single client that came in and say, hey, we need a new checking account, um, <laughs> yeah. or you need another credit card to go on top of the five that you have. And so a good friend of mine that I went to church with offered me the job at Pinnacle, and I took it immediately. Uh, it was door-to-door sales, and I've always loved sales. I was like, you know what, I, I think I could do that. And it was a time where I needed to do something different, and it, it was the opportunity that was in front of me. And so started doing door-to-door sales, and after a year, the grind of that, working from 9 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night sometimes. I was running a team, so I had six or seven people under me at all times that I was having to manage and take out and still man- do my own sales. And what, Was that here in Houston? It was here in Houston. So you can imagine out there, people that aren't from the south, doing door-to-door sales and it's 110 degrees outside would be miserable. Right. Like in the summertime, people will come to my house and... Like I'll offer them just to like stand there for a bit to get out of the sun, even though I know I'm not going to buy anything. Cause it's like these poor guys or ladies, like they're sweating, they're coming up, they got their elevator pitch. I'm like, you are grinding it out. Like, good for you. I'm not buying anything, but I'll give you a handshake. I know that doesn't pay the rent, but good on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I do the same thing. So when guys knock on my door now, I kind of let them do their pitch and then... I tell them, hey, this would be something that I would do differently. Good for you, and offering some advice. That's I awesome. I say, I've been there. I've done it. I've been in your shoes. This is what worked for me. I'm not buying anything because I have this already, and I don't need new windows. I don't plan on staying here that long. <laughs> yeah. So started working at Pinnacle, and, and my Bible study teacher asked me if I'd be interested in working in oil and gas. And my response was, I know nothing about oil and gas. I know that I put gas in a car. That's yeah. it. And he said, look, I just need guys that are willing to put in the work. I can teach you the oil and gas aspect of it. And it was kind of a competition, going back to that word again. And, and he said, you know, I'm bringing in three guys. And after the end of three months, I'm going to hire one of them. And so it's whoever performed, outperforms the other. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to lose that battle. So anything to get out of the 100-degree knocking on doors for 10 hours a day. Yeah. I was like, I'm in. And so started doing that a month and a half later, was offered a position at New Tech to start recruiting and sourcing for field operations on the consulting side for company men and worked there for a good four years and, and uh, the opportunity to do something different came up. And so I, I actually got out of oil and gas for a period of time and went into the wood industry doing operations management and sales there several reasons for that. One, it was a good opportunity to have a sum of special needs and, and new tech's insurance wasn't doing that for me. And so it allowed that to kind of take precedence and say, I can provide for my son in that manner. And Yeah, no, that's absolutely extreme. I mean, family's number one, right? And you yeah. got to regardless, you got to do what's best for your family and making sure they're taken care of. So yeah, big time. And so after a year of doing that, I was itching to get back into the oil and gas. And Yeah. Uh, Why is that? Just the energy or the money or what? Just the network. I had built a pretty solid network of guys that even when I was out were calling me all the time. I was like, hey, when are you going to get back? You know, I, I, I like talking to you. I like dealing with you. This is, you should come back. And it was always on the back of my mind and, and the opportunity came up to where I could get back into oil and gas. And and that was that was at Bedrock Petroleum doing consultants. Yeah. And, and that's where you were working when I met you yep, recently, right? Yep. Yeah. And so I've uh, been there for three years and recently they had a buyout through NES and some things were going to change again. So it was like, sure. you know what? I look for something different. Just so happened that Spira was in the market for something different as well. 
and they reached out to me and the timing just kind of fell into place. And it was like, you know, this is the perfect storm at the perfect time and, and really liked the approach and the direction that they were trying to take oil and gas, knowing that oil and gas is one of the most technology driven fields in the world. Yet there's so many things that are still done with paper and pen and not utilizing technology. Yep. hundred um, percent. And so they were, they're trying to be a group that kind of steers them away from that and tries to make everything more audible and digital and make everybody's life a little simpler. So Spira asked me if I'd be interested in business development manager for here in the U.S. And it was definitely a, a great opportunity for me and my family and, and jumped on it as quickly as I could. First month that I was with them, I was up in uh, Calgary for the first month. Got to uh, walk in the snow several days. That was this over this winter then. Yep. It had to have been. Yep. Yeah. And everybody kept asking me in the office, why are you walking to work in the snow? And I said, you know what? My dad gave me this speech when I was young and I've never had the opportunity to have this. So yeah. I'm going to take it. So that way I can tell my kids, I used to walk to work in the snow. <laughs> That's great. I like that. Yeah. So now here we are five months later and, and several things are really starting to take off. Yeah. Good, good. So... How was your time in Calgary? You said you spent a month there. Did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah? Yeah, I did. I got as much Tim Hortons as I wanted. (laughs) Right. Um, And, you know, the food was good. The people were very nice, very friendly. Transportation was good. I mean, I pretty much stayed downtown. And so there was plenty for me to do between work and going to the gym and running or doing whatever and waking up and doing it all over again. So Nice. So Spira, were they, was the company built with having oil and gas only as sort of the dedicated market, or were they a company that transitioned into getting into oil and gas? So they were a company that transitioned into oil and gas. So they started off, a couple accountants got together and said, hey, we can do this stuff better as far as ticketing and invoicing and bidding and quoting. And so they started developing a software, which then turned out to morph into oil and gas. And so that's been their main targets over the last several years, but it's a software platform that can work in construction. It can work in trucking. It can work anybody that has field tickets, okay. anybody who's doing invoicing. I mean, it could be a air conditioning company if they have 15 trucks, you know, so it could be anybody. And that was the thing that kind of drew me to it is like anybody that's in business could be a client. Right. And that's that's important, too, for companies to have the, the ability to be diverse. Obviously, we went through a massive downturn here recently. So if a company has that ability that, that they can reach out to different markets when times are slow, it just kind of helps balance the portfolio. So let's help the listeners understand. So who is Spira? You kind of described it already, sort of some data, some field ticket stuff. But explain what it is and how it adds value to the marketplace. So Spira is a platform for not only the operators, but also the service providers, energy companies that can run in conjunction in one platform, not only setting up their field ticketing, but eliminating the service companies that have to go out to the field and get a ticket signed. I'm sure you've seen it where guys, even in AES, they have to go out to the field and that company man's no longer there or that company man is off on days off. Hey, you got to come back in two weeks. It happens every day. And that that's tough because it prevents cash flow efficiency. So I'm with you on yeah. this. And so what it does, if a operator was on our Connect platform, all service providers will be billing through Spira per se. And so that way it eliminates lost tickets, it eliminates price gouging, it eliminates a lot of that stuff because it's all negotiated in the front forefront. So 
if a service is provided, company man will sign off on the fact that the service has been provided. There is no signature that needs to be done, but it's invoiced automatically. It can be built into their daily reports, not only for the rig company, but also the company man and the service provider, all in real time where the data is actually being collected out in the field. One of the main benefits also is it works offline. So if they're, if you're in deep West Texas, Delaware Basin, and you don't have a good cell signal, you can still input and collect the information. And then once you're into a good cell service, if you're in the trailer or back at the hotel, everything will upload for you. So no having to go back and do dual entry or write something down and then have to put it in later it can all be captured either with your tablet, your laptop or your phone. Interesting. So how do platforms like this help take the industry to the next level? Because I know there's a lot of there's a there seems to be a big influx of companies specializing in data management and digitizing things. And I mean, what how does this this help take our industry from where it is now to where the industry wants to be? Because ultimately, the industry from everyone that I talk to and then things that I'm involved with, it's all about trying to automate things. I mean, ideally they'd like to drill wells from the office, pushing buttons and limit the amount of people that are out on location. So how does Spira kind of fit into that? So very similar to what you just said. I mean, time is money and efficiencies for both sides are what needs to happen. Operators looking for the lowest cost service companies trying to maximize what they can out of their efforts. So if a service company is not having to send a guy to the field to get a ticket, I mean, they're saving money there. If if everything can be collected from the operator to the service company in one platform, now lost tickets, forms, you don't have to worry about that. It costs both of them money. It also costs them a lot of time. Our software adds a level of security and efficiency that you can't guarantee with paper or spreadsheets. Real-time reporting right from the field where the data is captured is the main important thing. And, and Spear is here to help put that in motion. There are other companies that do what we do, but they don't have the overall platform. We are not just an ERP system. We are an ORP system. We are an operational resource platform. Okay. Uh, and that so, was going to be one of my questions is how do you differentiate yourselves in the marketplace? But it sounds like you've taken multiple sort of aspects of this entire cycle and combine it into one. It's like a one-stop shop. If you cradle will. to grave. Yeah. And, and that's important because a lot of people out there talking about time, they'd rather have one invoice come across their desk from Spira, just whatever, and sign off on it rather than have, you know, someone for this and someone for that. Cause ultimately in, in our world, and this is actually something that we've been pushed on by a lot of our customers is, Hey, we want, you know, simple billing. We don't want to see multiple line items. We want performance-based billing or we want single line item billing to where instead of them having to review an invoice for 20 minutes, they want to see one number and be able to identify what it is and yeah, okay, good to go and then be able to cycle through those invoices a lot faster, which again, being someone like Spira who has multiple sort of packages lumped into one kind of helps limit the amount of people. And, and it gives them one point of contact too. So when something's wrong on this end, they can contact you. If something was on that end, they contact you. So it sounds like it, it just increases efficiencies uh, throughout you know the, the entire process, which is awesome. Well, and the thing that you brought up is performance-based. You really can't do a performance-based system without being able to collect the data. And so that's where Spirit comes in is you'll know if Rig Crew 1 or Rig Crew 2 is outperforming each other. You'll know who's on those crews and what they've done and how ah. long they've been out on location. Okay. Anything that's inputted into the system, data can be collected on and you oh, can wow. report on it. And that makes it easy for management 
or supervisors to be able to say, hey, recruit one did really well here, recruit two didn't do so well, maybe we try them in this area, or we, we change the crew up a little bit to see if we can maximize both. Okay. So you can find out where the inefficiencies are in real time that day, not two or three months later. And so going back to bidding jobs or quoting jobs, as information is collected and let's say AES bet, bid a job and that's going to be a lot more cumbersome than they thought. Well, now they can say, this is why we're having to build more because of this, this, and this, because the data has been collected. And so when you go back to your operators and say, hey, this is why this price adjusted, you would have those tangibles to be able to look at and say, here we go. Wow. No, that's a, that's a powerful tool to have. When you're talking to potential customers, are, are these types of systems already in place? Or I guess, let me reword that. Out of everyone you talk to, what's the percentage of people that are like, yep, this is next level. We need this versus like, you know what? We're okay with the way we do it. I mean, what what's their feedback been, been like for this stuff? So there's not been one company thus far that I've met with that's not like, yeah, this is something that we need. The issue is, is getting it up to that higher level yeah. of saying, hey, this is something we need to do in order to continue to grow and move forward. Because you do have that mindset of, hey, don't break what's not broken or don't fix what's not broken. Yeah. And so people will have their spreadsheets, they'll have their templates and, and they're used to doing it that way. And where it would save those guys in the field a lot of time and energy, maybe the guys in management don't necessarily view that as a cost savings that they need to capture. But in the end, it would allow them to bid jobs more effectively, be more aggressive with it, because that's less time that those guys are having to spend on that work, inputting figures, inputting information, collecting signatures from or stamps from company men out on location. It'll just make them more effective and more cost effective overall. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Well, I appreciate you explaining that. I mean, I didn't quite understand how much value that would actually bring, but hopefully companies can jump on board with that. How many people are on your team or how many people work at Spirit right now? So right now in the US, we have two salespeople. And right now in Calgary, we have over 37 employees there. Most of them are development. Most of them are software people. I would. That was the one thing whenever they offered me the position here, I was like, I'm not a software guy. But it was something that I could learn and I, I did see the value for oil and gas. And I've learned more about software than I ever thought I would, which has been awesome because my brother-in-law is an IT guy. And so now I can actually have a conversation with him and know what he's talking about. So we've connected a little bit more. Cool. That's good. So who's your, well, I guess it's pretty much anybody, hey, any company out there that deals with ticketing or any type of data collection. I mean, you, you guys, it sounds like you can tailor things to be a good fit for pretty much either operators or service companies. Yeah, we're highly configurable. We're not a software company that here's our box, take it and run with it. We configure everything to every company specific methodology. We don't want to change the way you do business. Right. We just want to help you evolve the way you do business. Okay. Um, so you guys are sort of fit for purpose. So that it's like if a company comes to you and says, here's what we do. Can you guys, I don't know if maybe customization is the right word, but essentially customize the way you know, your system works to fit the way we do things. Because I guess the reason I say that is through my experience with trying to adopt different softwares and different systems, it's kind of like there's fixed inputs and there's fixed whatever algorithms and calculations in the program 
to which then us as a company, we have to change the way we do things in order for it to work for the system, which is extremely challenging and it, and it takes time and depending on the complexity of it, going to customers and saying, hey, we have this new software, but because of that, we're going to have to charge you differently. It's like, well, the software companies, we shouldn't have to adjust to the software companies. The software companies should adjust to the way we operate because that's what the customers used to. And if we have to tell the customer, hey, we adopted this multi-million dollar software, but we're going to change the way we bill you. They're going to be like, next. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys kind of are flexible in that sense to where you, it's not just like, like you said, and here's our box. It's not like that. No. It's kind of, okay, yeah, and that's good. Yeah, we're highly configurable. So the way that you need it done, that's the way we do it. So you know as well as I do that operators have certain ways they like to be billed. Of course. Uh, certain people that have to receive those emails, and you better do it in that order. So we set up our system to be able to do those things. Now, would it come in an Excel spreadsheet? No, not. It would come through Spirit, but it would still be in an email format to them through the system already automated for you to where all you have to do now is hit approve and it's already done. You don't have to go through and copy and paste or save as and do all those things because it's in the system. And you can set up those emails beforehand to go through the chain of command or go through your workflow. Cool. No, that's awesome, Charles. Hey, look, I want to take a bit of a break here. It's actually time for our sponsor giveaway. Tendeka is our sponsor, and they're known for innovation in advanced completions and production optimization. They are giving away a mini portable projector. It's a goody mini LED projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video. Click the link in the show notes for your chance to win. Let's talk a little bit about happy hours. Everyone in the oil field loves happy hours. We're actually launching our Midland and Dallas-Fort Worth happy hours in April. We'll put the link in the show notes for some more details there. We've got our Houston Super Happy Hour. That's coming up on March 26th. I think this is going to be aired the week prior to that. So everyone out there, come out, enjoy a cold beer from our sponsor, who's Carbock, and some food from HEB and just the opportunity to network with other professionals in oil and gas. And one of the things, and I've mentioned this before, but one of the things I like about it is typically, you know, when you go to a happy hour with your company or with people that you deal with, it's you're, you're kind of pigeonholed in, into that group. But the one neat thing about the, the oil and gas global network happy hours is, is it's, it's people from all walks of the oil field. So if you're tired of dealing with the, sort of the same old mentality of, of customers or people that you're dealing with every day, come to this. It's refreshing. It's people all over from whether you're an operator, service company, software, technology, you know, tools. It's like anybody and anybody. And then there's finance folks. So it's neat. It, it kind of helps tie everything together. And it's just a great opportunity to network. I wanted to talk a few about some more events coming up. We've got the IPAA's Texas Wildcatters Open. That's on Thursday, March 21st. There's the Houston Professional Petroleum Data Expo, April 9th and 10th. That's going to be here in Houston. And Oil & Gas Global Network is extremely pleased to be part of the SPE GCS upcoming golf tournament. And that's on Monday, April 8th. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to sign up. Charles, is there anything else that you want the listeners to hear about with regards to Spira? Yeah, the only thing, uh, a lot of companies like you said, have something that they've already got in place or some system that they're using. Most of the time, it's three or four different platforms that they're having to use to get all their information. And most of the time, that software doesn't communicate with each other. Like I said, Spirit is highly configurable. If you have something in that you just can't get rid of and you're like, this is something that we have to work with, Spirit works with that. We can still map the information from one system to the other. Not all the time. There's some companies that don't like to play ball. But for the most part, if you have a system that's in place and you 
just you can't get rid of it, but you need other features as well. We we can be that company for you. Perfect. Well, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your website in the show notes. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they have any questions? Are you a MySpace guy, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn? I don't know what MySpace is anymore. I, but, uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep asking people until someone says, you know what? Yes. And then I'm going to put a MySpace link into the show notes. I think it'd be hilarious. So if you're not a MySpace guy, where's the other ways you can reach out to you? Yeah. So LinkedIn, I'm very heavily involved on LinkedIn. I'm Perfect. always on there. We're posting stuff all the time. People need to reach out to me by email. They can do that as well. And again, phone. I'm old fashioned. I don't mind uh, coming and meeting you and shaking your hand and actually yeah. having a conversation. So, hey, we're in the business of uh, it's a people's business. I agree with you. Face to face is always 100 times better. I did want to ask you one last question. Do you have any habits or routines that you follow that contribute to your success? Just consistency, it's consistency and transparency. One of the things that I've always taken with me everywhere I've gone is is being honest with the people and giving them realistic expectations of what I'm capable of versus pie in the sky and then not reaching that. I rather, it's an old cliche, I rather go above what I've said I could do versus underperform. And yeah. so just being honest with people about what your capabilities are and what your weaknesses are. I mean, that even goes back to when I was selling door to door at Pinnacle. I, I would literally tell people, I'm actually here to sell you something. And that was my opening line. And there's, they tell you, you're not here to sell something. You're here to give something away. No, I'm here to sell you something. <laughs> right, right. So, but yeah, just consistency and transparency and knowing what I work for and who I work for is important. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, look, I appreciate your time today. Thanks again for listening to Oil & Gas On Shore. If you're looking for more information, hit up www.oilandgasonshore.com. And that's a wrap for today's. And always remember, folks, oil and gas on shore, providing energy for the world through innovation one well at a time. Thanks again, Charles. Yeah, thank you. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil and Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 